you know, today's teaching, as we studied last two weeks of just glorious attributes of God, we see God's holiness, God's sovereignty, His omniscience, all-powerful, God who is sovereign. But today, we come to learn and to dive into the primary attribute of man. The primary, the chief attribute of man. We don't have all these other attributes that are worthy to be mentioned. A primary attribute of man is not just depravity, but total and complete depravity. And so this teaching will make some of you very uncomfortable, especially if you heard this for the first time. If you're visiting us for the first time, and not familiar with this doctrine, it should make you very uncomfortable. If I do my job right, if you hear it for the first time, I should make you a little bit angry this morning. And I come before you humbly, as minister of God, to give you the whole counsel. I, am, I do have a responsibility to tell you the truth. If you go to a doctor, if you're not feeling well, you want the doctor to tell you the truth, right? You know, I'm a heart patient. I recently had, a couple months ago, I went through a full a checkup, stress cardiogram. They put about 95 things on you with electrodes and they make you run. And you run for a while, they get your heart rate up so high. Then they, my doctor told me, then you tells me, okay, once I stop the machine, stop breathing. So I'm here puffing and puffing, stop breathing. They put maximum stress on the heart. Then they do an ultrasound to see how your heart is doing. And this doctor had a sense of humor, right? So I'm there. Okay, stop. He stops the machine. I go over there. There's a uh, bed. They lay down on the side and he puts a thing on me like they do with moms to see my heart. And he goes, he tells the nurse, did you see that? I'm just startled, right? What is he doing? And he was just kidding around, right? You know? It turned out he said it was everything was good, you're normal, see you later. But for about two seconds there, when he was kidding around, it wasn't that funny. <laughs> right? But the point is, you want the doctor to tell you the truth. If there was something wrong, I want him to tell me the truth. And as you as well, if there's anything else wrong. Well, your spiritual condition, I want to tell you the truth today, is my condition as well as yours. It is that the man is depraved, completely depraved. Let me give you some historical um, crimes and historical quotes to start off. And I want it to be sort of politically correct, so I took all different... Um, I look at war crimes and I try to take it from like every angle possible. Okay. R.J. Romo, a professor of political science at University of Hawaii, uh, stated between 1937 and 1945, the Japanese military murdered nearly 3 to 10 million people. Okay, these are murders. These are not people who died in fighting the war. These are murders. Okay, civilians mostly. In March 1968, United States Army platoon led by William Calley killed hundreds of civilians, primarily women and children, from the village of Mailai. And 26 soldiers, including 14 officers, were prosecuted of this massacre. Joseph Mengele, who was the chief doctor at Auschwitz, a man who's known as uh, with extraordinary cruelty, he dissected infants, he tested twins, he tested dwarves, 
men, men, women who were born with different type of challenges and to the end he was defined he believed in what he did and his leader said this he says today I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the almighty creator by defending myself against the Jews I am fighting the work of the Lord and Adolf Hitler said that and another woman said I can't understand how all this could happen to make you lose faith in God. Eva Braun said that in the last days of World War II. You see the depth of these outrageous comments? These are depth of human depravity coming to surface. And we are all capable of that. You know, we have beautiful children here. We have Emma here, we have Lauren, Sophia. So on, so on and so on. You know, you moms who hold your babies. Only person to hold a pure and holy child was Mary. All the moms in this room, when you hold your babies, you're holding a child, a depraved sinner. You know, there's nine years between, um, gap between Derek and Nolan, my two children, two boys. And before, when I had Lindsay and Derek, I didn't know this doctrine. But I clearly knew this doctrine when I had Nolan. And when I, he was moment, within 10 seconds after he was born, I prayed for his soul because I knew I was holding a depraved sinner who needed the of God. That is the truth. You know, the importance of the doctrine, it hinges upon, everything hinges upon this. Because we question how we're going to share the gospel. What is the gospel? How do we conduct ministry? How do we view God? Hinges upon this. If we don't realize this, you can't be a true Christian. If you don't realize this, we don't understand true attributes of God. I've seen a man, Gary and I witnessed this year, the depths of depravity of a man who leads his nation into poverty and death in North Korea. You see these things happening. Why do you ask yourselves, why do these things happen? Why do these things happen? And the reason and the answer is in the Bible. Because we are depraved. Just backtrack a little bit. Just a quick historical background. In the 16th, around 16th century, there's a Dutch pastor, theologian, Jacobius Arminius, who was once known as a Calvinist, but later after doing on his personal study, he came out the doctrines of God, doctrines of unconditional predestination, that man has freedom to, free will concerning his salvation. Then in response to him, through Reformation and Calvin, the church history says he was by far, undoubtedly the most important systemizer of the Protestant theology and faith. And Calvin emphasized the sovereignty of God, the sinfulness of man, the unique authority of Scripture, and the doctrines that came with it. And that's is where we get tulip, right? It's not something that we give our wives when we run out of money, but it is 
I was a little slow there, people. <laughs> but and the top, the T comes with uh, stands for total depravity. It encapsulates what Calvin put together, what he saw, understanding grace, the doctrine of salvation, doctrine of man, this interconnection of the system, and it starts with depravity of man. You know, total depravity is the foundation of the gospel. Foundation of the Bible as man. It, under, it is, gives us the foundation of how we are to relate to God and our relationship with Him. Understanding our condition. Critical. Because without it, we can't understand true grace. Grace cannot be magnified for what it truly is until we understand this. If we don't understand this, we cheapen God's grace. We cheapen what Christ did on the cross if we don't do understand this. Right? Because grace cannot be magnified until we understand how low we really are. Depravity, uh, by Webster's definition, says it's characterized by corruption, perverted, or evil. It's pretty close. Robert Raymond wrote, Total depravity states a man in his raw natural state as he comes from the womb is morally, spiritually corrupt in his disposition and character. I'll give you many quotes today because they're much more eloquent throughout history. Many godly men have gotten this right. Total depravity means that every sinner, every man is guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of elevating his desires over the regards of God. One commentator wrote, This is self-love over God. It is bad enough to deal with God the Creator, but to enthrone the creature, to enthrone self as God, is the height of sin. That's very good. Total depravity also means that every sinner is possessed with a nature inherited from Adam's fall, which is completely hostile toward God. We were all born in positive aversion to God and His authority and natural bent towards sin. It means every part of our being, every part of our mind, our will, our emotion, our affections, our conscience is affected by sin. And therefore, we cannot trust man. You know, the founding fathers got it right. You know, the checks and balances of democratic government is there because you can't trust anybody. Right? You can't, tr- you can't put a, a single leader. His guy's depraved. You need other guys to check and balance that person. Right? Spurgeon said this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. says, Fallen of Adam are dead in sin, incapable of even the first move toward God, even more, they are filled with the effects of depravity and alienation from God, enmity and hatred towards His holy standards. The man's fallen nature is dead and enslaved to sin. The unregenerate, fleshly-minded man is incapable of doing what is right in God's eyes. Any shape or form, the spiritually lost, he is dead. It's not a neutral thing. Okay? He's not an ICU hanging on. There's an ounce of life. No, he's completely dead. Corner has declared us dead in spirit. 
since the fall, since the curse, man is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. Not anything. Why do I believe this? Because I believe the scriptures tells us so. Let me give you a few instances. There, it's replete and complete with this thought. But the Bible tells us, I'll highlight some of them for you. Genesis 5. The Lord saw that every inclination of man's heart was wholly evil all the time. Psalm 51.5. David declared, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful since the time my mother conceived me. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right. Isaiah 64.6 All of us have become like who is unclean and all our acts are like filthy rags. Romans 3 What then? Are we better than they? Not for all. That we are charged with both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands no one who seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become useless, there is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throats are like open graves, with their tongues they keep deceiving, with poisons of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace have that known, no fear of God in their eyes. That depravity means every person is dead. It does not mean that everything that we do is bad. That's not what it means. But the man's nature is corrupt and disabled spiritually. Dead. This is the Bible's view of man. That's God's view of man. It's the truthful side of man. It's the truthful side of who we are. I don't know how you came to come to this morning through those doors. What view that each of us had of ourselves. And those things don't really matter. What matters is how does God really view us? So one's understanding of sin and his condition, man's condition, would directly influence the doctrine of salvation, how we are saved. One's understanding sin is truly everything. Because it marks upon one's view of nature of how we'll live our lives. How we'll conduct ministry at home. How do we conduct ministry in the church? How do we relate to one another? How do we proclaim the gospel to an unbeliever? Man is totally depraved. You know, one pastor in my readings this week said this, and I couldn't remain, but he said this, the condition, the man's condition, but nothing but a loathsome stench in God's eyes. This is why Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers of all time, preached 95% of his time, his sermons, he preached on the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, and spent 5% of time the love of God and the grace of God. You know, the basic problem with the Arminian view, I believe, is that it allows room for people to take human depravity a little bit less seriously. It allows room not to take God's righteousness a little bit seriously. Contrast to man, the doctrine of man's sinfulness and inability 
the utter inability to recover himself the human will is at a bottom is in a bond Calvin wrote it's enslaved and he cannot move toward God on his own no way God the man cannot reach to God no way shape or form that's what the Bible tells us I'll refer it's in your notes uh, outline I'll refer to Romans 5 over and over again Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, so death spread to all men because of all the sin. For until law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift of God is not the transgression. For if by transgression of one many died and much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of one man Jesus Christ abound to many and the gift is not like which have come through one who had sinned for one who had the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation but on the other hand the free gift of God free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification for if by the tradition of the one death reigned through one, much more received abundance of grace and the gift of us will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. So then as though the one transgression there result in the nation of all men, even so, through one act of righteousness the result in justification life to all men. For as through one man disobedience many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one the many were made righteous. And law came in that transgression might increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more that as sin reigned in death even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord Paul focuses on the Adam on Adam and the reign of death as sin engendered the apostle Paul makes it clear that destruction caused by sin affected all creation. Paul depicts how Adam and Christ's analogies are opposite. Because of Adam's sin, all men were condemned. But because of Christ's obedience, we're all pardoned. Therefore, what is sin? Sin is the issue. Sin is the issue. Okay? Many people at this day and age talk about sin but sin is the issue why? Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God sin is lawlessness Charles Ryrie says it is a negation of which is inherent in the very character of God himself sin is which is contrary to God himself human are bent on disobedience they're predisposed to sin seared an attitude that goes against God you know those of you who are parents know this you, know, you don't have to teach your children to sin right you don't have to teach your children to lie they do that on their own okay I'll tell you a classic story about my son I talked to him he said it was okay to talk about it okay my son Derek he was about five I had a rule when they play with toys you have to pick it up and clean it up before you move on to a different thing one day I came home and looked in his room and it was a mess. 
And there are so many toys. Because I always threaten, if you leave your toys on the floor, Daddy might throw it away. So all those toys, there's too many to throw away. You know, so I, like, I spent a lot of money on these things, so <laughs> I can't throw everything away. You know? So I said, Derek, go bring me your favorite toy that's on the floor. But Derek in his sinfulness, <laughs> fulfilling the truth of God, I asked him to bring his favorite toy. And here he comes with a toy. I don't know where he picked it up. <laughs> he picked up this nasty toy that was from a Happy Meal at Dairy Queen out in Barstow somewhere, right? This was not worth anything. I knew he had much value, but he was trying to stay ahead of me. But, but I knew how he thought. My, he's my son. I know his every move. So I said, Derek, since you're, this is your favorite toy, you get to keep it. <laughs> Let me pick out a toy for you. I don't know what I did after that, but you see, the kids are like that. Our children are like that. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to sin. They're born sinners. The truthfulness of scriptures come out. Your parents know. Your parents know the truth. Where did they get it? This is where they get it. And this sin has been inherited to us. It's inheritance of sin. Inherited sin is simply sinful in which all people are born consistent bent toward we are sin nature our entire being that's what David said in Psalm 51 this is right after uh, Nathan confronted him his sin he sees his def- sinfulness who was chosen king of Israel and he has sinned before God in a theocracy and he sees himself who he is and he says in sin my mother conceived me he's seeing so you put him this, look at David here he is thinking to himself how did I get this how did I get here being exposed to sin and he said to myself in since in God inspired words in sin my mother conceived me see the impactful impactfulness of that that remark and there's a penalty for these sins it is death. Man is born spiritually dead. We're born dead. Sin is also missing the mark. Missing the mark, falling short of what God intended. But we do it willfully. We partake in it. It's inherited to us that we partake in it as well. And we have inherited because of that sin as well. We are counted guilty because Adam's fall Romans 5.19 For as through one man disobedience of many were made sinners even though the disobedience obedience of one will make righteousness. Calvin wrote He infected all posterity which the corruption into which we had fallen. Adam so corrupted himself that infected infection spread from him to all his descendants. You know, Psalm 14 says, A fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool here is not someone just who is devoid of wisdom, but a chief fool in one, is one who does not recognize who God is and who do, does not recognize who he, is, who he is and makes himself higher than God. So Adam was the arch fool and we are falling right in his footsteps. The entrance of sin and death caused 
universal reign of death and sin to all to one man all the, everyone is totally guilty so it's federalism right it's representative the fall was federal but all members of human race were represented by Adam in the garden through one's transgression Adam's transgression by one man's disobedience we were all declared sinners entire human race as our representative and our sinfulness confirms the truth of the fall and there's we are corrupt after that we inherit that corruption we're sinful in our nature John Calvin asserts the original sin as the hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of our soul which makes us liable to God's wrath. The fall of man did not extinguish man's spirit but it caused the spirit to die and it disconnected the relationship between man and God. Death did not annihilate man. This fall did not annihilate man as we are but he corrupted the soul and separated us from God and severed the fellowship of the God we cannot discern the true love of God without him opening our eyes Ecclesiastes 9.3 the hearts of son of men are full of evil Jeremiah 17.9 the heart is deceitful above all things it's corrupt because Matthew 7.18 says a bad tree cannot bear good fruit sinful man on his own cannot do anything good in God's eyes it's a sickness it's a corruption it's a radical corruption that is in a perpetual state cannot extricate himself the depth of sin We are paralyzed in terms of Godwardness. The depth of sin, the word total, it's not just depraved, it's totally depraved. And it's affected every part of man's being, including his will. Unregenerate, because he is totally controlled by a sinful nature, will always, every single time, freely and deliberately, will choose please himself not God choose to please a sinful self sinful will and that's what we pursue look at ourselves look at the decisions you make we make day in and day out we pursue ourselves Romans 8 for the mind is set on the flesh is death and mind is set on the spirit is life and peace and because of the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God and is not subject to itself to the law of God sin is in us sin has completely corrupted us and bankrupt us okay? completely bankrupt I don't know if you know bankruptcy law it's chapter 7 it's annihilation it's liquidation everything is gone right chapter 13 you could hang on to certain things chapter 7 is you liquidate everything you give everything to the creditors we have everything is gone Furniture, forks, spoons, everything's gone. You don't have anything to hold on to. Charles Spurgeon, as a salt flavored 
in every drop in the Atlantic, so does the sin affects every atom of our nature. It's like people. You have jug, gallon of water, right? Gallon of water. You drop a, a smidgen drop of cyanide, right? Would you drink it? Would you take a sip of that jug? Just a sip. It's only a little bit of cyanide. Take a sip. Would you? No. The whole thing has been tainted. The whole jug has been tainted. That's the picture of who we are. There's no ounce of good. People try to hang on. The free will of man. People try to hang on to a bit of ounce of hope. There's good in us. There isn't. The Bible tells us there isn't. We like to think there's ounce of good in us. But there isn't. The result of sin is spiritual blindness, number one. 1 Corinthians 2:14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand that. And he is helpless. Man is helpless in this condition. The fall has left him unable to perform any spiritual good. Before the fall, we were in harmony. Man was in harmony with God's law. But after we are enslaved to sin, then it brings death. The universal destruction of human life. It is what sin brought into the death. Sin is created in God's image. But the consequences of sin is death. There's no more truth than death, right? Everyone in this room will die. Will die. We can't avoid it. The consequence of fall. We see death all around us. That's why people in the mortuaries and cemeteries stay in business. Because one thing for sure, we will die. Because Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Then there's wrath. We must come to grips with the doctrine of wrath of God. The man is damnable in his state. Because of his state, he's damnable. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam broke it. And breaking that covenant provokes God's wrath. Our sins provoke God's wrath. Calvin also wrote, Original sin, therefore, seems to be hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature, diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable God's wrath. We have a debt. Okay? Some of us own homes or own cars. You have a debt to pay the bank or the financial institution. That must be satisfied. Well, our sin, the consequences of that, is the wrath has to be received. There is a wrath of God on sinfulness of man. You know, in the modern day, the love of God, the goodness of God, is a centerpiece of doctrine. To many, to hear the wrath of God is detestable. And it makes us uncomfortable. Some of you may be feeling very uncomfortable hearing the wrath of God and lowness of man. Because we are nature by children of wrath. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but who... Many, many people memorize that portion. But who does not obey the Son of God shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides in him. In him. You know, we commit sin 
because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we commit sin. We sin because we are sinners. We lie because we're liars first. We don't become liars after we lie. That's the state of man. And God will pour his wrath upon an unrighteous man because God is... You know, I heard this from Dr. Sproul at the past conference. This wrath, the gravity of his wrath is um, depicted in Romans 1.18. This wrath of God is revealed from the heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth of transgression. You know, the word wrath is orge. The original text is orge. The word for orgy. Why does, God, why does Paul use the word orgy for God's wrath? Where does he get that? But it's the degree. We see in terms of man's passion in an orgy. But the degree of God's passion of his wrath against a sinful man. That's what Paul is depicting here. That's the degree, that's how much passion he has against the sinfulness of man. And we have to deal with that. The degree, I think, is barely touching it. I think words cannot express the truthfulness of God's wrath. And Paul depicts it a little bit here. The preaching the love of God does not make anyone angry. Every happy. The preaching the man's duty to God as creator, as the judge. Saying, how can you send someone to hell who will make master teeth be angry? But people, I have brought you down low into the valley of the depths. But it gets better from here. Wouldn't it be cruel if the Bible left us here? But there is a remedy. There is hope. And this is why we're here today as Christians. Bible clearly, undoubtedly teaches the fall of man and the sinfulness of man, the misery and the state and the ruined soul and state of deadness. There is not to speak one ounce of goodness, divinity left in the soul of man as a consequence of the fall. But the natural man is not able to see anything goodness in this strength of God but there's a remedy the gospel truth of Jesus Christ since Adam Romans since Adam was a representative of all mankind and the fall of the flesh but Christ through one man is representative of what is eternal grace of God Condemnation may be traced to Adam, but justification and hope is traced to Christ. Adam's disobedience brought death to mankind, but Christ's obedience in his life gives hope to the elect. Through one man, sin entered the world and death came, but through Christ, through one man, righteousness entered the world. What was, it's a reverse imputation. The imputation, the original imputation was not Christ, was Adam of sinfulness, but the imputation of righteousness came through Christ. You see the glory of the cross, what he had to do. And we saw that movie Passion a couple of years ago. It is graphic because that's God's view of sin. 
That's how God treats sinners. God demands perfect righteousness and we have nothing to offer but through Christ that righteousness has been imputed to us. How marvelous, how glory good is that? Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were formerly walking in the course of the world. But God being in rich in mercy because of His great love He loved us even when we were dead or in our transgressions He made us live together in Christ in order that in the ages to come that we might, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and the kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been through faith you have been given life. The free gift of God. God declares through Christ they let righteous it's solved. Grace solves this issue of depravity. There's no other way out. This is the only way out. And it was given in Christ. Christ's death not only satisfied the wrath of God, but it met the holiness of God. It satisfied the holiness of God. And we grasp onto it through our faith through Christ. 6.17 But thanks to be God, you were slaves to slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, that from the teaching which you were committed, having freed from sin, you became slave righteousness. In this doctrine of saving grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. If I had to quantify the sinfulness of man, the fall, if you had to quantify it, is about 100 but the grace of God the cross of Christ is 10,000 that much more if that doesn't stir your emotion I don't know what does as a Christian doctrine of grace teaches us that salvation of God's grace there's no boasting for man whatsoever it happens only by the spirit's regeneration the pastor John Risinger wrote, he wrote this there's basically only two religions in the world one that begins with the free will of man and that begins with the sovereignty of God first tells us what you must do for God and second declares what God has done for you that you cannot do for yourself the religion of free will pictures salvation as a possibility for all men if you are willing to cooperate with God, with God by believing the religion of faith presents salvation as certainty for all elect of God because God gives faith as a gift. Those are marvelous words. John Calvin, any mixture of power of free will meant to strive to mingle with God's grace is nothing but corruption of grace. It's corruption of grace and cheapens grace. You know, even the ability to come to Christ, saving faith, to come to Calvary, is by God's doing. He has to turn man's heart, to regenerate the heart of man, to see the glory of the cross. Through the fall, we cannot see that. Through our sins, we cannot see that. By our nature, we don't want to see that. We are corrupt. It is impossible to see that without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Man is so corrupt, he cannot come to Christ, nor has the power to do, until the Father draws him. Spurgeon wrote, these words of the spiritual transaction between God and man. By nature, men are said to be dead in sin. If the Holy Spirit quickens 
It cannot be because of any power in the dead man or any merit in him, for they are dead. For the corrupt and the rotten in his grave for their sins. If then the Holy Spirit says, Come forth and live, it is not because of anything in the dry bones. It must some reason in his own mind, but not in us. Therefore, know this, men and brethren, that we all stand upon a level. We have none of us anything that can be commended to us by God. But the Spirit shall choose to, co-op, uh, to operate in our hearts unto salvation. He must be moved to do it by His own supreme love. For He cannot be moved to do it by His own goodwill, desire, or good deeds that dwells in us by His nature. God's grace, the great thing about God's grace, when it comes upon us, when the Spirit moves and opens our hearts, it is inescapable. It is for sure. It's a done deal. Because the Spirit moves. We don't move. When God draws men, yes. When God draws men by preaching of the Gospel, but Father must draw Him. That's what an apostate religion is when they desire or heightens the ability of man unto salvation. But it's God's work unto salvation. You know, what is the reason for grace? It's not, the point of grace is not to save us. Again, it's, we, man tries to put himself in the forefront or the center of everything, but it's not to save us. The real grace is not to save us. The reason, ultimate purpose of grace is to glorify God. To God, the Father, to draw glory to Himself. The judgment followed upon Adam's transgressions, but much more again. God's grace abounded. God's judgment is not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to display His grace, display His glory. I hope that, that we have come to a place that we know ourselves, who we are. Because this is what, whether you like it, or are uncomfortable with it, or you dislike it, it's what the Bible te- teaches us. So my final thoughts would be, First is that we need to have a proper view of God and man. High view of God, high view of who He is, and low view of man, view of ourselves. You know, practically, that this should influence how we deal with sin and how often we speak of sin, how we are to confess sin, how often, how detestable is sin in God's eyes. If we're unable to see ourselves as sinners and not and we should readily confront our sins. We should not take sin lightly. You know, we're going to in our small groups, in our flocks, smaller groups, life on life, being doers of the word. I think that's one thing that we could apply. That we should honestly confront one another of sins. Because the goal is not to offend anybody. The goal is to glorify God. How does God view this situation? In our families... We need to honestly confront our, our wives, our husbands. Honestly talk about our sins with your children. Always seeking what is pure before God's eyes. We should teach holiness to our children. 
parents, remember, we're not our, our kids' playmates. Right? They do that at school with other friends. We're their teachers. We're their pastors. We need to teach them the holiness of God. And we should not tolerate sin in our lives. We become what we tolerate, right? If we're in our living room, someone comes and throws a pile of manure in your living room and you allow that to happen, you are what that is. We should not tolerate sin in our lives, in our families, in one another. And honestly talk about it. Make it okay to talk about it. And make one another uncomfortable a little bit. Truly, honestly talking about that. In the church, if the elders don't honestly confront one another of our sins, of who we are, the church will be weak. We need to honestly confront one another as husbands and wives. And secondly, you should produce genuine humility and devotion to God. We should see our vileness and our sinfulness. We should see how I am so sinful. You know, Second Corinthians twelve says, "My grace is sufficient for you. For power, for my power is perfected in your weakness." You know, we should be humble before one another. You know, we should not be one of the worst pride, prideful things that we could have is doctrinal pride, pride and cornerstone. Right? We should love cornerstone, but f- those for those who come in this, these doors for the first time, we should not have pride in our doctrine. We should love them. They don't know. We should kindly, gently teach them. Love them first. We should be humble before one another here. Not thinking highly of ourselves, but lifting the brother or the sister. Serving them. Becoming one another's servants. Because we have nothing before God anyway. We should think of ourselves even a lowly sinner in light of one another. You know, and lastly, it should produce more fervent walk with the Lord each day. The fall brought death to man. In the death to man, what was the key? Was the separation, the severance of relationship with God? God has now restored that relationship as a Christian. Are we pursuing that each day? Why is our prayer life so difficult? Why is it difficult to study God's word each day? Because you know the reason now. Because it's not in our nature. We keep falling back and desiring to go back in our laziness, in our comfort, wanting to go back to that fallen state more. We should strive the other way. Go against our nature to maintain spiritual disciplines in our lives. Because that is continuing growing the relationship with God you personally which way are we going are we going back to the state of the fall or are we going back going toward what Christ has done for us that should be a reminder each day for us to pursue Christ to live in obedience to Him in your personal lives when no one else is watching or looking on your own serving one another being on your pray for one another pray for the church and its leaders pray for your flock 
shepherd. Pray for your brother and sister in your flock groups. I pray that we, the grace would be reminded to us because we have been, we know that the depth of, of our sinfulness and we know the truthfulness of our true being and the grace of God and how majestic that is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise this day. We thank you for your word. The scriptures are clearly so evident of man's sinfulness. And it's clear of your holiness. And we see the depths of our hearts, the sinfulness of man. And we come before you this day and repentant of our sinfulness although we have been given much grace we have been given the righteousness of Christ yet we slide and still bend towards that are sinful Father forgive us for desiring those Father help you but of God's grace how you have saved us have reached out to us to the cross to give us forgiveness of sin May this doctrine be real in our lives as well as knowing ourselves truthfully and live to glorify you knowing what you have done for us. We pray for your continual grace to be more like Christ each day. In his name we pray. Amen.